Hey, this is Evan. Welcome back to the Full Semester Podcast. Uh, this is the second episode in our two-part series on transcription and translation. Uh, that is how cells produce the proteins they use using the genes they have. Last time we talked about translation, um, excuse me, last time we talked about transcription, today we're going to be talking about translation. So we've already covered how cells use their cellular machinery to create edited mRNA transcripts. So today what we're going to be talking about is what cells do with those transcripts once they have them. How does it go from mRNA to a protein, to a functional protein in fact. So without further ado, let's talk about translation in the full semester podcast episode 7 from genes to protein part 2. So what we've been talking about so far is um, it's just been the production of mRNA transcripts from genes. So we haven't actually gotten to the process of producing polypeptides from this yet. Just to really quickly review, what happens is that uh, genes are transcribed by an RNA polymerase, which takes the DNA template, unwinds it, and produces an mRNA transcript. This is a pre-mRNA transcript. It hasn't been edited yet. Then that mRNA transcript goes through an editing procedure, which eventually produces a final um, mRNA that leaves the uh, nuclear envelope via a nuclear pore. This uh, is then brought into the translation process, which is what we're talking about today. So when I, when I mention uh, things like polypeptides or proteins, what I really mean, and this is a review from an earlier episode, is I mean an amino acid chain. So a chain of amino acids that are joined by peptide bonds. Peptide bonds are the formation of, uh, of a bond between an amino group and a carboxylic acid group found on amino acids, right? Amino and acid. And this is formed by a dehydration reaction between the amino, amino group and the carboxylic acid. Remember dehydration uh, reactions and amino acids and R groups and all that kind of stuff? All of a sudden, all of this sort of introductory material that we've been going over so far is going to become quite useful and is going to sort of make a lot of sense, I hope, for you. Um, we also then are able to form proteins that have primary structure, secondary structure, tertiary structure, and ultimately quaternary structure, combinations of multiple polypeptides. For my use, I will use protein and polypeptide interchangeably. Know that some biologists get a little bit picky about this, especially biologists who work in protein folding and other types of fields like that. Um, Functionally, though, for most introductory biology students, pe uh, polypeptides and proteins are the same thing, so don't worry about that too much. So we've briefly touched on RNA a few times. We've talked a little bit about the fact that it's very similar to DNA, um, the fact that it, it makes messenger RNAs, but RNA has a lot of other functions. One of those other functions is what's called a tRNA, T as in Tammy. tRNAs are uh, also known as transfer RNAs, and they also make up ribosomes. M uh, RNA also makes up a ribosome in part. 
Um, we've talked about ribosomes before. These are the, what makes the ER rough. This is where translation happens. And the way that it happens, very briefly, is that transfer RNAs, which are an RNA structure that has a, an amino acid bonded to it, um, comes into the ribosome, finds its site, matches to the uh, template mRNA strand, which is running through the ribosome. The peptide bond forms between the amino acid and the current polypeptide chain, and then the um, the tRNA leaves to be recharged. So that's sort of uh, translation in a nutshell. That's how it works. Uh, let's look at the individual parts more in detail. The first part that we'll look at in more detail is the uh, structure and function of transfer RNAs. So a tRNA molecule is a single piece of RNA that is only about um, sort of 80 nucleotides long. It's not, it's not a very big piece of RNA. Uh, what this is, it, um, it's a piece of RNA that's flattened in one plane. So everything uh, sort of looks, uh, at least when you're looking at it in a one plane way, everything looks like a clover leaf. So it sort of looks like a three leaf clover. Uh, so because of hydrogen bonds, it's not actually, uh, it doesn't actually look this way. It's not actually a two-dimensional structure. It loops back on itself and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so it's a three-dimensional molecule, but um, it looks, when you flatten it, when you look at it in a flat way, it looks sort of like a three-leaf clover. It's got a sort of tail, and then it has three uh, loops, so three hairpin loops, sort of like the eye of a needle, one sticking out from either side and one sticking out the top. When it is folded, when it's in a three-dimensional shape, it's roughly L-shaped. And this is important because that L is where the amino acid is attached. Um, and the cool thing about tRNAs is that they're not identical. So even though the main structure of a tRNA is identical to the main structure of every other tRNA, what's different is the uh, uh, the amino acid that's attached to it. And that actually underlies some other differences in these tRNAs. They're not the same and they can only accept a certain um, amino acid. The way that we know this is because uh, certain amino acids are uh, more difficult to, to get onto proteins than others. Certain amino acids are rarer. And part of the reason why they're rare is because they have rare tRNAs, tRNAs that are just not in as much abundance as others. And this is affected by a variety of things. Uh, primarily, though, as far as I'm aware, the number of transcripts, the number of copies that can be made because of the number of copies of the um, RNA gene, the tRNA gene, in the genome. So if you imagine that you have one copy of the tRNA gene, you have a maximum number of mRNAs you can make from that gene at any given time. But if you have uh, like five copies of the gene that codes for this tRNA um, that will then allow you to make multiple tRNAs, you can make five times as many at any given time. So certain ones have a larger uh, number, a larger copy number in the genome. But the important thing here isn't to know that certain ones are more or less common. The important thing to know is that they are not identical. So tRNAs are not identical to one another. And this is important. tRNAs not being identical is important because we are using them for a specific task. Remember that these amino acids have a code that is being coded for by the mRNA. And we don't want to mess this up, right? We want to get the particular 
amino acid in the particular sequence that it appears so that we produce a uh, protein that works. If you switch out uh, uh, an amino acid and put it in the wrong place, you are likely to get a non-functional or at least uh, wrongly functional protein. So you really, there's a vested interest here, uh, an, an evolutionary imperative to get this right. And so the way that we do that is we have tRNAs that only match a certain set of bases. And this leads into the sort of concept of translation. Uh, for translation to be accurate, it has to have two things. First, there has to be a correct match between the tRNA and the amino acid, uh, which is done by an enzyme called aminoacyl tRNA synthetase. So let's look at that term again, synthetase, right? So this is something that synthesizes, and it's an enzyme, and aminoacyl, so it's an amino acid, and it uh, pairs it to a tRNA, aminoacyl-tRNA synthetase. This is an enzyme that produces amino acids bonded to tRNAs. So first, we need a correct match between a tRNA and an amino acid, and this is done by this enzyme. Second, you need a correct match between the tRNA and the anticodon, um, which is on the tRNA, and the mRNA codon. So codons and anticodons are complementary pairs of three bases. I mentioned earlier, and you should have looked at the sheet, that showed that codons, the individual combinations of bases that, pair, that um, code for a particular amino acid, are a sequence of three bases. And so there's one on the mRNA strand, um, which is called the codon, and one on the tRNA, um, which is called an anticodon. And when those two match, they uh, fall into place so that the amino acid can be added to the polypeptide chain. This is only uh, flexible in one place, and that is in the third base of the codon. So you have to have the first two matching, and the third one you must have matching most of the time. This is called the wobble base. Uh, so it sounds like a sort of Nicki Minaj song, doesn't it? But anyways, the, the wobble base is the third position of the tRNA and of the um, mRNA codon and anticodon. In this case, uh, you need to be able to, or you don't need to be able to, but it's possible to bind more than one codon uh, with an anticodon on the tRNAs. Notice, if you look at the degeneracy of the code, so if you go back and look at that amino acid chart again, where they're paired to their codons, you'll notice that almost always the last base of the three is the one that varies. So if you have four different sequences of um, amino, uh, four different sequences of nucleotides that produces a particular amino acid, you'll notice that probably, in most cases, the last base of the three is in one case a T, in another an A, in a third a G, and in the last a C. They're all different just at that last base. You won't find any that vary on the first two bases. And this is really cool. This is a sort of a prediction, right? If you think that this happens all the time, you can make predictions in science about this. And in fact, my PI has a great story where he was sequencing mitochondrial genes from field crickets in, um, in his PhD studies. And these field crickets had a whole bunch of fixed differences in their mitochondrial DNA because they um, were evolving into being different species. 
And when he sequenced the, the uh, mitochondrial genome of these uh, organisms, he found something like 150, or I can't, I can't remember the exact number, but he found quite a number of fixed differences between the two putative species groups. And every single one of those differences between the two species was at a wobble base. So it's a less important place, but it's still important to make sure that you get the correct amino acid. But how cool is that, that you can make predictions based on what you know about wobble bases and see it borne out in the real world in evolutionary study? I think that's fantastic. So again, so the way that this happens, the first step of accurate translation is to pair an amino acid with a um, with a tRNA. And this is accomplished by aminoacyl tRNA synthetase. This is an enzyme that takes in an amino acid. It has a little functional pocket for an amino acid. And then it takes in a tRNA and using some energy, it attaches the two together. And eventually you get what is called a charged tRNA, a tRNA with an amino acid on it. So once you have this amino acid, once you have charged tRNAs, now you need an mRNA for the tRNA to match with. And this happens in ribosomes. Ribosomes facilitate the specific coupling of tRNA anticodons and mRNA codons when undergoing protein th synthesis. So these uh, ribosomes have a really cool structure. They have two different subunits. So you can imagine they have two different parts, one that clicks into the other just like Lego blocks. The first is called the large subunit, and it is the one that sort of classically sits on top. We think of it as sitting on top. And the small, which sits on the bottom. These are made out of ribosomal RNA, rRNA, uh, the third type of RNA we've talked about. We have talked about mRNA, we have talked about tRNA, and now we are talking about rRNA. rRNA is the, the structural component of ribosomes, um, and they represent a, a use for RNA where RNA itself is being used to create uh, a sort of a, a catalyst, an enzyme that creates uh, proteins out of other RNA. Okay, so what does a ribosome contain? Well, a ribosome has three binding sites, so it has three different sort of pockets in it uh, where tRNA fits. It has a P, A, and E site. In the P site, it holds a tRNA that carries a growing polypeptide chain. So this is the second of the, of the three sites. The A site holds the tRNA that carries the next amino acid that's going to be added to the chain. And finally, the E site um, holds the discharged tRNA. This is where the tRNA that has been, uh, has the amino acid removed, has been discharged, is going to leave from. The easy way that I remember this is that the E site is the exit site. And I haven't come up with a good mnemonic for the P and the A site, but the P site is where the polypeptide chain, actually that's a good one. So the P site is where the polypeptide chain is found, the E site is the exit site, and the A site has the amino acid. So P, polypeptide, A, amino acid, E, exit. The P site is in the middle, so you have a P site flanked by an E site and an A site. And as the mRNA runs through, it moves from A to P to E. 
Uh, and so you have the A site where the amino acid comes in, the P site where the peptidyl uh, tRNA is held, and the E site where it exits. So if you're looking at this diagrammatically, you can remember it with the mnemonic E, P, a in reverse order or APE. Uh, EPA would be good because you would remember it because of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, APE might be easy because it's an ape um, and so that's a good word to remember. But uh, either way there are three sites A, P, and E. The amino acid site, the, pepti um, the peptide site, and the exit site. Okay, so we know a little bit about the ribosomes. Let's talk about the actual translation procedure. When you undergo translation, just as when you undergo transcription, there are three stages. The initiation stage, the elongation stage, and finally the termination stage. All three stages require uh, a protein factor that aids in the translation process, uh, something that helps it to move along. Let's talk about these one at a time. So the initiation stage begins when a small ribosomal subunit binds with an mRNA. So this is the small part of the ribosome binds with an mRNA and a special initiator tRNA. This, um, this special initiator tRNA just helps it to bind. Then uh, the small subunit moves along the mRNA until it reaches the start codon, which in, in most cases is AUG. This is the first codon that is important. It's where, it, it's where translation begins. And why is this important? Well, it's important because you need to know where to start for the um, for the for the correct reading frame right because if you're off by one all of your amino acids are different so the uh, start codon is very important AUG so what we have so far is the small ribosomal ribosomal subunit has bound mRNA and it has moved along the mRNA until it reaches the start codon then proteins called initiation factors bring in the large subunit that completes the translation initiation complex. So the translation initiation complex all put together is a, an mRNA, the small ribosomal subunit, a start uh, codon tRNA, which has a methionine attached to it, and then the large ribosomal subunit, which is recruited by translation um, excuse me, initiation factors for translation. Then, as you go along, you have elongation of the polypeptide chain. During the elongation stage, amino acids are added just one by one to the preceding amino acid chain. Each addition uh, involves proteins called elongation factors. So this is pretty easy to remember, right? The initiation factors bring in the large subunit and initiate translation. The elongation factors um, add on or help to add on more amino acids. Elongation occurs in three steps, codon recognition, peptide bond formation, and translocation. So uh, the first part is codon recognition. This is where a new amino uh, acid and, and tRNA come in to the A site. Um, the current uh, elongated amino acid, uh, amino acid chain, so the polypeptide, is in the P site, and there is currently nothing in the E site. Okay, so the new one comes in, recognizes the codon, and then a peptide bond forms by uh, combining the amino acid of the 
um, first one with the amino acid chain of the second one. So we're moving the chain from the P amino acid to the A amino acid. And so then you have two amino acids, one that is uncharged in the P site and one that has the polypeptide chain in the A site. And then what happens is the uh, they all sort of jump. So the P1 moves to the E site and the A1 moves to the P site. And then you repeat the whole process. The ribosome is ready for the next amino acyl tRNA. It's ready for the next charged tRNA. So once again, you have a... Uh, you have a tRNA with a polypeptide in the P, you add from the P to the A, they both jump over, so P moves to E, A moves to P, and you start over again. That's how you elongate. You add one at a time until you have a long, long polypeptide chain, often with uh, several hundred polypeptides, uh, and then you have to end it at some point, so you have to terminate this process. So termination occurs when a stop codon is reached. So we talked a little bit about stop codons and how there are a particular sequence of bases that result in a stop signal. And in this case, what happens is when a stop codon is in the A site of the ribosome, the A site accepts a protein called a release factor. This release factor uh, basically just causes the addition of a water molecule instead of an amino acid, which leaves the uh, binding site of the uh, polypeptide chain closed, can't add any more. This releases the polypeptide, and the translation assembly then immediately comes apart. So what happens is the uh, stop codon is reached, a release factor gets added, and then instead of adding an, uh, an amino acid, you just add a water molecule, which binds up the end of that polypeptide, which then goes loose and floats around. It's called a free polypeptide. And as a result of that, the ribosome sort of comes apart. Um, polyribosome. So a number of uh, ribosomes can translate a single mRNA at the same time, forming what's called a polyribosome. This is something that I was describing earlier when we talked about transcription in prokaryotes, where when a, when a transcription is undergoing, when a transcription is happening, you can see the ribosome sometimes attaching directly to the transcript, and you get these little sort of pearls on a chain uh, structures where you have a transcript coming off of the genome, so an mRNA transcript coming off of the genome, and then ribosomes moving along, translating it as it's being transcribed. Pretty cool stuff. Um, polyribosomes enable a cell to make many, many copies of a polypeptide very quickly, which is helpful, especially if you're trying to respond to some sort of outside stimulus. Again, you can find uh, pictures of these if you just look up polyribosome on Google. Really cool pictures of them. Okay, so, so you should have a little bit of a reaction at this point because um, I just said that we have a free polypeptide, right? So do we just have a protein? Are we ready to go? Um, the answer is no. We don't quite have a ready-to-go protein just yet. Uh, and this is important because just like with transcription, um, there is some modification that has to happen, especially in eukaryotes, to make the protein functional. Often, translation isn't sufficient, right? It's not, it's not enough to make a functional pro protein. Uh, polypeptide chains can be modified after translation uh, in a process that we call post-translational modification. Again, highly creative terms here. Post-transcriptional modification of mRNAs, post-translational modification of polypeptides. Make sure to keep this term straight, though, 
from post-transcriptional modification. You wouldn't believe the number of tests that I've graded that talk about post-transcriptional modification of polypeptide chains. So just make sure that you keep um, them separate. Post-translational modification is for polypeptides. Post-transcriptional modification is for mRNAs. So during and after synthesis, polypeptide chains spontaneously coil and fold into a particular three-dimensional shape, but that might not be the three-dimensional shape that is actually useful, that is sort of enzymatically useful or can be used for a particular function or can be recognized in a particular way. And so to fold it properly, to, uh, to sort of make it happen uh, properly, there are proteins or enzymes called chaperonins. Um, this is one of the first examples of an enzyme that doesn't have the AS E part on the end, but a chaperonin is a catalyst for the folding process of proteins. What it does is it uh, takes the finished protein, it sort of um, gives it a little bit of activation energy potential, and allows them to um, to fold uh, into the way that the cell wants it to fold. This is not the only kind of post-translational modification. Some polypeptides are activated uh, or, or repressed by enzymes that cleave them, so cut them in half, or add functional groups uh, like phosphate groups or remove functional groups like phosphate groups. There's a whole field of biology that's, that's primarily concerned with the post-translational modification of polypeptide chains and how that affects individual uh, polypeptides. There is also a group of diseases that you might have heard of before, something like Jakob Creutzfeldt disease or mad cow disease, which are um, uh, diseases that are created by a, a thing called a prion, P-R-I-O-N, or a prion, if you're pronouncing it the British way. A prion or a prion is a um, an improperly, an improperly folded polypeptide. So it's a it's a a polypeptide that is folded in the wrong way and a polypeptide that can catalyze the folding of other proteins into its wrong shape. So you can sort of think of this like a vampire, like someone who can go around and bite somebody and turn them into this other wrong thing. And uh, these are really dangerous because of this fact, because the infectious dose, unlike with other um, unlike with other diseases, the infectious dose of a prion disease could be as little as just one molecule, and it would have a huge lag time because it would take forever for it to get going, but it's possible to have just one molecule uh, give you this disease, which is why people like myself who used to live in Northern Europe are not allowed to donate blood at all in America because they, there's no way to test for just one molecule in your blood, even though it's very unlikely that I actually have this disease. So anyways, there are um, lots of things that can happen to enzymes, um, or excuse me, that they can happen to proteins after they have been translated. Uh, not the least of which is any of these folding ones, but also importantly is the uh, combination of several polypeptides, polypeptides to form the subunits of a protein. This is tertiary structure, right? So this is a concept where that we've talked about, where individual transcripts of cells, often transcripts that are res the result of differential, um, differential splicing, differential modification of transcripts um, using different exons, different exon shuffling, that kind of a thing. Um, these different pieces of uh, polypeptide are often used to create one large protein, one large uh, enzyme that has a function based on all of the subunits that it has. 
Okay, so where is all this going on? Well, polypeptide synthesis always starts in the cytosol. So it always starts in the cell matrix outside of the nucleus, outside of the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, this happens uh, when the small subunit binds a mRNA, as we mentioned. And what happens is that either the synthesis can finish in the cytosol or it can finish inside of the endoplasmic reticulum. And the difference is whether or not the polypeptide is um, destined for the ER. It's marked with a signal peptide. It's marked with a little piece that is a um, is sort of a signal to the cell that this needs to go into the endoplasmic reticulum for either specific modifications or for targeting to a particular part of the cell. A signal recognition particle binds to the signal peptide and then brings the signal peptide and its ribosome and the uh, elongating uh, polypeptide chain to the ER, to the endoplasmic reticulum. This happens because the protein has a specific function, like I mentioned, or a target within the cell that requires it to be connected to the endomembrane system rather than just sort of being free-floating in the cytosol. So an mRNA is bound to a ribosome and there's a little signal peptide at the end. The signal recognition particle binds that signal peptide and brings that ribosome and attaches it to the um, endoplasmic reticulum uh, lumen, the wall of the endoplasmic reticulum. There is no difference between ribosomes that produce free-floating peptides that just sort of end up in the cytosol and ribosomes that produce uh, peptides that end up inside of the endoplasmic reticulum. There's really no difference between the two. Okay, so last thing that we're going to talk about here is how there can be a connection between the genes and the final proteins. I mentioned before that reading frame and that um, codons are very important for the final protein structure that you eventually get. And a good representation of this is what is a, is a, a thing called a point mutation. This is where uh, something has happened. So a mutation, just generally speaking, is when there is a change in the genetic material of a cell or of anything that carries genetic material. And a point mutations is a change in just one base pair. So if you had an A, now it's a G, for example. And this makes a much bigger difference than you might expect. In fact, changing just one nucleotide is the difference between uh, regular hemoglobin and sickle cell hemoglobin. Sickle cell disease being a very, very uh, lethal, dangerous disease found often in sub-Saharan African populations and thought to be linked to malaria resistance, but that is another podcast. But the point here is that you can get this disease by just having one um, one difference in your in your gene. So in the wild type hemoglobin DNA, the um, the uh, original gene in this particular codon reads CTT. In the mutant hemoglobin, it reads CAT. So do you see what ha what's happened there? The middle base, not the wobble base, right? The middle base has changed from a T to an A. And this means that the mRNA, instead of being GAA, is now GUA. And it means that instead of having a normal hemoglobin with a glutamine, uh, which is coded for by GAA, it now has a valine, which is coded for by GUA. And this makes the entire disease happen, just that one difference in the hemoglobin gene. Crazy, right? So point mutations can be very, very important.
And in fact, there are more than there are more types than just that one that I described. What I just described was a base pair substitution uh, point mutation. So this is where one base is tra is traded for another one. And this is typically um, bad, but it couldn't. It's not really that bad necessarily. Uh, often you can have synonymous substitutions, especially if it's on a wobble base where you change it, but nothing actually happens, right? Because you can still put the same um, the same amino acid on that particular codon. But even worse, you could have a base pair insertion or deletion. This is where either you get a new base or a deleted base. And in this case, what happens? The reading frame gets thrown off. And then instead of having just one amino acid be different, now you have every amino acid past that one be different. Or even worse, you get a stop codon where before you had an amino acid. These kinds of things completely make the uh, protein that results from this gene either not work, work differently, or, or not be produced at all. You only get one um, you know, amino acid or you only get the methionine or something happens. The point here is that there are many ways to replace a, um, a nucleotide or to insert a new one or delete it. There are words for these, and, uh, and these are used very frequently in the literature, so they, they are probably important to know, especially for class. Um, a base pair substitution, as I mentioned, replaces one nucleotide or its partner with another pair of nucleotides. These are often called silent mutations because sometimes they don't have any effect on the amino acid produced, again, especially if they're on the wobble base. If something changes a wobble base, um, you may not notice because you get the same amino acid. This is called a silent mutation. A missense mutation still codes for an amino acid, but not necessarily the right one. So if you um, switch a, a base pair and now you have a different amino acid, like we did in the, in the hemoglobin example for uh, sickle cell anemia, you have what's called a missense mutation. You still code for an amino acid, but not necessarily the right one. And finally, a nonsense mutation is where you change an amino acid into a, into a stop codon. So you take a particular amino acid and you change it, and then the three amino acids there become a stop codon. This almost always leads to a protein that is non-functional or at least functions incorrectly. Insertions or deletions, as I mentioned, are a uh, loss of nucleotide pairs in a gene, and these mutations have a disastrous effect on the resulting protein more often than substitutions do because insertion or deletion of nucleotides produces a frame shift mutation. Again, this changes the frame and so that every base past it is different than it ought to be, and sometimes that results in a non-functional protein, and other times that results in a protein that has a function, but it's not the one you expected, which is uh, dangerous. Um, now, how does this kind of thing happen? Well, this happens through what are called mutagens. Mutagens are uh, something that can happen. Um, it's, it's an induced uh, mutation. So uh, normal mutations can happen all the time. Something uh, happens that goes wrong when you are transcribing, for example, when you're, when you're uh, duplicating your DNA, as you do every time when you divide your cells. Spontaneous mutations can happen, and uh, we often have extra copies of genes and things like this to compensate in case something gets destroyed, and we have DNA repair mechanisms that take care of this. So um, spontaneous mutations can happen, and it's how we know um, things about how things evolve. We, we, we can get to this. But if you are exposed to a mutagen, 
a mutagen is a, is a sort of physical or chemical agent that can cause mutations. So you're getting more mutations than you normally would when you are exposed to mutagens. Many people are familiar with these. I, we, we joke sort of colloquially about, you know, uh, cell phones giving you cancer. Um, and of course, the research is still out on that. But there are well-known mutagens um, like uh, dimethyl sulfoxide is a very well-known mutagen. Uh, X-rays are a very well-known mutagen. Uh, ethidium bromide is a well-known mutagen. There are all of these different chemicals and physical things that um, you interact with on a regular basis, especially if you get your teeth x-rayed. And it's the reason why they make you wear that lead vest, incidentally, because those x-rays have the potential to mutate your DNA. And you could get a silent mutation. You could get a frame-shifting mutation. You could get a stop code on. You could get any number of things, and it's hard to know what it's going to be. So it's better to limit your exposure to those kinds of things. So finally, let's just talk sort of broadly about gene expression again. Uh, when you are talking about gene expression, uh, you are talking about a pretty universal feature of life, of all of the different things that life undertakes. Almost all life does it more or less the same way with transcription from DNA into RNA and then from RNA into proteins. Bacteria, of course, can simultaneously transcribe and translate the same genes. Uh, eukarya, transcription and translation are separated because of the nuclear envelope. And uh, we're not really sure about archaea, how they do transcription and translation. So if you are an aspiring biologist, maybe that could be the thing that you investigate, is how transcription and translation are coupled or not in archaea. So let's revisit this question. What is a gene? This is the question I asked you uh, a couple of episodes ago. And the question really um, has been considered now by us in a couple of different ways. The first way is as a discrete unit of inheritance. It's the thing that passes on uh, from one organism to another. A second way you could say is a, a region of specific nucleotide sequence in a chromosome, right? That is absolutely correct. It's a part of a nucleotide uh, sequence in your chromosomes. But that doesn't really tell us much, right? So maybe we should think of a DNA sequence that codes for a specific polypeptide chain, something that takes um, information from your, from your chromosomes and makes it into functional polypeptides. In summary, we can define a gene as a region of DNA, right, that can be expressed to produce a final functional product, either a polypeptide or an RNA molecule. This happens via transcription. RNA polymerase produces an RNA transcript, which is then goes from a pre-RNA to an mRNA with a poly-A tail and a terminal cap. That uh, mRNA is then uh, is then translated in the ribosome into a polypeptide, which is then um, finally modified to fit its function and targeted to the specific part of the cell. So that's it for this episode. I'm going to just review very quickly. What you should be able to do at this point is describe the contributions made by Garrod, Beadle, and Tatum to our understanding of the relationship between genes and enzymes. You should be able to explain how information flows from gene to protein via the central dogma of biology. I remember I mentioned that. You should be able to compare transcription and translation between bacteria and eukaryotes. You should be able to explain what it means when you say that the genetic code is redundant, but also unambiguous. You should be able to use all of the following terms when you describe transcription, mRNA, RNA polymerase, 
promoter, terminator, transcription unit, initiation, elongation, termination, introns, and exons. You should also be able to include the following terms in a description of translation, tRNA, wobble, ribosomes, initiation, elongation, termination, polypeptide, and EPA sites. So that really completely does it for this episode. You now know how cells go from a gene to a protein from start to finish. I hope this has inspired you to be a little bit curious about how genes work. This is a large part of my work, what happens between the gene and becoming a functional protein. How does this affect the evolution of species? And so I love to be curious about this kind of thing, and I hope that you do too. So please... um, read up on this, uh, you know, investigate how genes turn into proteins and maybe how the evolution of genes affects the kinds of proteins that we encounter every day. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you stay curious. appreciate you uh, listening as I always say that I do. Uh, music again provided by Michael Enright and you are welcome to email me at any time. I'm happy to answer emails uh, at fullsemesterpodcast at gmail.com. That is fullsemesterpodcast at gmail.com. I really enjoy responding to your emails so please uh, send them along. Uh, you can, as always, help me out by telling your friends about this podcast, about uh, sort of helping me to reach the audience. I would also love your feedback to know uh, what you think I should be doing, what I think, what you think I should be doing differently. I tried a slightly different tack on this one. Instead of coming out with one huge long episode like I did for the tour of the cell, I released two Uh, smaller episodes that were able to go into a little bit more depth than the others were. So I hope that worked out for you. Uh, Thanks as always for listening, and I will see you next week.